Hi everyone and welcome back to the Reading Materials podcast where two friends get together every couple of weeks to talk about a book or series of books. My name is Lucia and my name is Cory and I apologize beforehand if there's an echo we're recording well I'm recording in a new space and it's it's quite big and empty and I have no backup so <laughs> I'm jealous you will have to make do and for some reason yeah. my phone just switched on and I wasn't speaking to you phone go away <laughs> anyway how are you Cory I'm good how are you I'm all right I'm yeah. uh, on the beach so I, I am cannot so complain. jealous. So jealous. What I wouldn't give to be able to just go and have a swim right now. Yes. You know? Is the water cold? Oh no, it's the perfect temperature. Oh, you sh- you were supposed to tell me it was cold. <laughs> Sorry, no, it's freezing. I could barely put my tone in. <laughs> tone, toe in. <laughs> toe. Oh, very good. Well, good. Well, I'm glad you are in a delightful place. I have no, no such luck. I'm still in the, still in the flat. Just living my life. No new, no new things have happened here. No news can be good news. Yep, it is. I think (laughs) just, just chilling. Trying to be better about doing my reading and my podcast homework on time. Good, I'm glad one of us is. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I postponed again this week because I did not manage to finish reading this book on time. That's but. all good. I postponed last week and we had less time to read it. So there we go. But next week we will be back on track for sure. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. So. Cool. What book did you pick for us then? Um, I picked I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith. It was published in 1948. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure this is a redundant spoiler warning. But if you have not read the book and you would like to read the book, then I recommend you pause now, read the book and then come back later because we will be discussing it in full depth and detail. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I did some minor research, but tell me about Dodie Smith. Oh, I'm sure I've probably done similar research to you. She was born in 1896. She died aged 94. Oh, wow. Yeah. Let's think. She was an only child. Her father died when she was two, and her mother remarried when she was ten. She grew up in England. Her house sounds like there were lots of relatives in it, lots of aunts and uncles and grandparents. Her grandfather was really into Shakespeare and melodrama, so he got her into all of that. And she went to RADA, which is the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, which is where many of the famous actors and actresses have gone and still go. So she did act for a little while and then she became a playwright and she started working in a, I think it was a furniture shop where she met her husband. Mm -hmm. She continued to write plays. They moved to the USA for much of the 1940s because her husband was a conscientious objector. 
which means that he refused to do military service on political or ethical or, or some other grounds, I see. which obviously then caused issues because it was the Second World War at the time. Mm-hmm. This book was written while she was in the USA, I think largely because of homesickness. She also wrote 101 Dalmatians, which everybody knows, I believe. <laughs> find it difficult to find somebody who didn't know that story. Hmm. I just didn't know that it was based on a book. No, I didn't either. That was really surprising, yeah. Yeah, and there there were a couple of other books, but she wrote a number of books, a good number of plays, none of which I recognised, and acted in a few things, again, none of which I recognised, but that would have been long ago. Do you have anything to add? Not really. The most interesting thing for me was the 101 Dalmatians. And I I picked the book. I think I I typed in something like a hundred classic novels that you must read or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it made it made the list of the BBC did a hundred they did they got everybody to vote on what books you should read in like two thousand and three or something. Mm-hmm. And and this was on that list. Um so that's how I ended up picking it. Mm-hmm. Because for season five, we are doing classic novels, although this is the most recently published of all of the books. Yeah. And had you heard of this before you saw it on the list? No. Yeah, no. me either. I hadn't heard of it at all. So, there we go. Mm-hmm. When did you finish it? I finished it um, about an hour ago. Very good. So... Cool. I might ask you to lead this one because... No, that's fine. I've had... I finished it yesterday morning, so I've had a little bit more time to think. Good. Okay, so are we ready? Mm Mm-hmm. This is the blurb for I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith from Goodreads. Through six turbulent months of 1934, 17-year-old Cassandra Mortmain keeps a journal, filling three notebooks with sharply funny yet poignant entries about her home, a ruined Suffolk castle, and her eccentric and penniless family. By the time the last diary shuts, there have been great changes in the Mortmain household, not the least of which is that Cassandra is deeply, hopelessly in love. Oh, that's that it? it? Oh, okay. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, what did you think? Yeah, I quite liked it. Um, I think I'm going to give it three stars. Maybe three and a half. Mm-hmm. I wasn't completely blown away, but it was definitely more enjoyable, much more enjoyable than Alice in Wonderland. And mm-hmm. yeah, generally I thought it was a well written the fact that it was written not that long ago means the language was accessible mm-hmm. I like the kind of spooky vibes of living in this abandoned castle I would never want to live there <laughs> but it was nice to read about it so yeah just kind of an average enjoyable read but I don't think I'll I would never want to read it again but I, I'm glad that I read it I guess. Mm-hmm. How about you? 
I really enjoyed it. Uh, I probably wouldn't want to read it again either, but I am toying between 4 and 4.5 stars. Mm -hmm. I also found it accessible. I really enjoyed the story. I really enjoyed the levity of it. You know, we've really challenged ourselves with some really difficult topics recently. Mm -hmm. And this really boiled down to the bare basics of love, basically. (laughs) Hopeless romance. (laughs) In a time that we don't necessarily have the same things, so there was a lot of marrying for status and wealth, Mm -hmm. or, you know, talk about that kind of thing. It it gave me some things to think about, but not not too much. Mm. It wasn't overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And it's about and it takes place in the nineteen thirties, which I feel mm. like I should know more about because okay, granted it was a hundred years ago, but you know it feels more accessible as a time than I don't know the early eighteen hundreds or something. Yeah, definitely. But in a sense, I feel like I might know a bit more about the early 1800s than I would about society in the 1930s, because there were a few things that I found a bit surprising or a bit confusing in this one. Yeah. Based on their behavior or the way they talk to each other, or as you said, reasons to get married. Mm -hmm. I would have thought that by the 1930s, it would have been more modern than it actually was, I guess. I agree with you. I feel like there was a bit of a regression between the the world wars. Mm -hmm. And then after the Second World War, we really kicked off on the whole... Well, no, it wasn't even after that. It was the 70s, really, wasn't it? Yeah. Should we talk about the characters? Let's talk about the characters, yes. So the main character is called Cassandra, and the book is told... From her point of view, it's actually her diary that she keeps for about six months of the year. She's 17 years old. She's, what does she call it? Tolerably bright. Yep. (laughs) Quite funny. She's a middle child. She has an older sister and a younger brother. And yes, she becomes a hopeless romantic by the end of the book, I suppose. Mm Mm-hmm. So what did you think of Cassandra? Yeah, I really liked her. Um, I When I first started reading, I'm not sure that I particularly kind of understood that it was her... Like, it was obviously a journal, but it took a little while for me to get into the idea that it was her journal. And she was also trying... She started doing it to try to teach herself how to write. And so when I first started it, I was like, oh, we've got another one of those situations where everything is over-described because she went into quite a lot of depth describing the castle. Mm -hmm. And then as I got sort of more into the mindset of this as a young girl, figuring out how to write and trying to... She obviously aspires to be similar to Jane Austen or the Bronte sisters because she references them a number of times. Mm-hmm. So she's obviously wanting to be a great writer and and that translates through into the journal. I thought she's quite believable. You you really got a sense of her growing from being a child who just left school to to a young woman who had more comprehension of the issues of real life. Mm-hmm. Like, at the beginning, she sort of found they were really, really poor. And she kind of found that 
fairly romantic, I think. Yeah. She didn't mind that they were so poor when they were talk when she was sort of talking about it. She was going on about sort of um oh, we had eggs for dinner and wasn't that a luxury? Mm-hmm. You know, whereas I think a lot of people would <laughs> not have the same opinion. Mm. So, yeah, I I I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And her. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think this book, after a long time, in the sense of after many books that we have read for the podcast, had actual character growth. Yeah. Yeah, I think I agree with you. Thinking back to it, it almost feels like she was treating their poverty kind of like a game, as in mm-hmm. these are the kind of silly things that we have to go through in order to survive on literally no income. Mm. There's even a scene early on where they're trying to tally up how much money each person brings in in the year, and it's just zero, 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 zero. Mm. Nobody's making any money. The youngest brother is going to school only because he's on a scholarship. By the end of the book, she's definitely much more aware of what does it mean to be poor and what does it mean to actually have money coming in and Mm. sacrificing for love, etc., which she definitely didn't have at the beginning. So yeah, I found her relatable. I thought she was quite funny. Obviously, she's very well-read. She's read a lot of Jane Austen, Charlotte Bronte, War and Peace. Like there were, there was a lot of mention of a lot of, I suppose, classics, <laughs> um, in this book. Mm. A lot of poetry as well. She seemed to really enjoy poetry, which yeah. is not something that I enjoy. So no, didn't really care about those parts. But <laughs> I, I think one of the sort of things that I was thinking about. You know, we do tend to go on about feminism in this podcast and it really sort of struck me that because I knew when it was written, I sort of forgave the attitude of, oh, you know, like like my main role is to get married or especially her older sister, her main role was to marry rich. And in any other book I would have, you know, in a modern book, I would have just been like, oh, feminism, whereas with this, I was a lot more forgiving of that. But I, it did make me wonder how it was received when it was a modern book. Mm-hmm. You know, is it sort of true to life? Mm. Or we both sort of hadn't quite realised how backwards things were then, but maybe that's just the book. You know, maybe maybe it would have been perceived as being not particularly forward-thinking at the time, or maybe it was a true reflection or even quite forward-thinking because by the end some things happened that I wasn't expecting, Mm -hmm. which could have been seen as being quite progressive. Yeah, I, I don't really know. This is what I meant when I was saying I don't really know much about that time. I thought it would be a lot more modern and maybe perhaps Rose's attitude towards what her role is was old-fashioned because there was also the comment from one of the characters calling her a gold digger which Mm. would make it sound like it's no longer the norm for Mm -hmm. a woman to just marry rich and that would be her Mm. only contribution to society and there was I think also particularly in reference to Rose who was the older sister 
when she first meets the two young men who move into the big house and becomes their landlords or become one of them becomes their landlord she puts on an act because she's trying to attract them and that comes across really badly because she has been informed by for example Jane Austen mm-hmm. and it is described as being old fashioned Rose does say that she she wishes she could live in a Jane Austen novel Mm. And I do believe Jane Austen was a hundred years before then. So yes, mm-hmm. I suppose it's a slightly outdated worldview. So speaking of Rose, what did you think of her? As a person, she would have really annoyed me. Mm-hmm. Like if I met her, she she was kind of pathetic. Like she had decided that she had no talents and she had nothing going for her. And therefore she just sort of lay around and moped about the castle and was really negative about everything. Although that may have been the juxtaposition between her and Cassandra, who was really relentlessly positive about everything at the beginning. Mm -hmm. But as a character, I thought she was really well written and she had some fairly interesting choices to make, which I thought were, were well done. And she also really, I I felt, she she thinks she's fallen in love with Simon, who's one of the brothers, because he kisses her and she gets the physical infatuation with him. And, you know, who can't identify with that, thinking that you're completely burningly in love with somebody? And then, like, a couple of months later or sometime later, looking back and being like, (laughs) what was that about? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So yeah, I I quite liked her, but I wouldn't have liked her as a person. (laughs) How about you? I think probably the same. Um, And I keep thinking how much that is realistically her character and how much of it could just be um, how Cassandra perceives her. Because sometimes I feel like when you have a book that is, especially in this case, a journal, so it really is we're deep in Cassandra's mind. Everything is written from her point of view. You know, how reliable is she as a narrator? Everything Mm. will be described in the way that she perceives things. So, you know, we don't really know how Rose feels about everything that's going on. Yeah. Because we are just getting it from Cassandra's point of view. Yeah, exactly. But based on what we do see, I would agree with you. She's Mm. a bit of a frustrating character, but she does also develop, like she does grow up, I suppose, in a way. Mm. I like that. I don't think that I saw it coming entirely. I thought she would still go through with the marriage. Yeah. Even though I did get the sense that she wasn't actually in love with Simon the way that she claimed that she was. Mm. The antagonism between her and Neil very early on seemed to me as a, oh, they like each other. They just can't tell each other that they like each other. <laughs> yeah, you see, I did not get that. I ah. <laughs> I was really I was really worried that Neil, who was the younger brother, was going to fall in love with Cassandra. And I was really sort of being like, please don't let this be a cliche where two sisters fall in love with two brothers and da 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 da. So, so yeah, I, um, I quite enjoyed that. <laughs> but I didn't see it coming at all. Okay. But it did kind of become that cliche because 
I mean, yeah. Rose yeah. falls in it's love just, with they Neil. They fell in love with the different brothers. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So yeah, I don't really know what else to say about Rose. The middle of the book, when she was in London and she was, you know, listing all the things that she was getting in her trousseau, which is a word I had to look up, which is basically, yeah. is it the equivalent of a dowry or like as in yeah. all the things that a bride receives to bring into the marriage, I suppose. Yeah, it's the clothes that you would have as a married woman. Mm. Because I think there was a very big distinction back then between what you were allowed to wear as a young maiden and what you were allowed to wear as a married woman. I see. Okay, see, I didn't know that. Like, she felt very kind of superficial, kind of spoiled. She Mm. really struggled with the fact that they were poor. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly when they had money coming in, mostly as gifts from the Cottons, mm-hmm. she really liked that. Which, yeah, like I'm judging her now, but realistically, probably I would be the same. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really, it's it's kind of every person's fairy tale, you know, like you and I were just talking before we started recording about buying a beach house in Cyprus, which is where you are at the moment. And, you know, who doesn't lie in bed at night and think, oh, if I won the lottery, I could mm. do I could do all of those things. But I thought it was really well sort of illustrated that Rose really hated being poor, but then she became fabulously rich through her engagement to Simon. Mm-hmm. And she was living in a flat in London and she had an enormous bedroom and a very white bathroom and peach towels that were all nicely folded and cleaned and you immediately got a sense of dissatisfaction from her where she she really felt a sense of duty to the family to keep going on with it because because it was getting them out of poverty they now had food on the table and they had clothes and all that jazz mm-hmm. but she would go into the bathroom and cry because she was lonely and i don't know i just really felt at, there's one point where Cassandra goes up to London unexpectedly to visit them and you really sort of got the impression that Rose was really deeply unhappy. Mm-hmm. Or I did. And I quite liked that because it added a touch of reality to the whole thing of money Money doesn't make the world go round. Interesting. I think I read it differently. I didn't read it so much that she was deeply unhappy I read it as general dissatisfaction, almost as if the money had gone to her head and she'd become a bit of a snob because she was Uh, complaining that, oh, we went to a matinee and, oh, it was so boring. As in, you know, like three months ago, they had barely anything to eat and now she's living it up in London and she's complaining about the fact that, oh, the matinee that we went to today wasn't particularly interesting. Yeah, I think the reason I saw that as being dissatisfaction rather than arrogance or whatever you want to call it was mm-hmm. was because we'd just ha- we'd sort of previously had the scene on Midsummer's Eve where um her and Cassandra used to have this ritual where they'd go up onto the onto the mound and do all these rituals for Midsummer's Eve which was very much a children's game mm-hmm. and it's described as such and there's sort of a moment where Cassandra realizes it's the last time that she's going to do it because she's growing up now but I don't know, I think I sort of compared the two and thought, well, you know, 
Rose's dissatisfaction comes from not having all of those sort of meaningful human interactions anymore, if if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I see what you mean, and probably you're right. Well, no, it's 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 just interesting that we both got such different things out of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I suppose, I mean, I agree, she probably was deeply unhappy, if for no other reason than mm. the fact that she was engaged to Simon, but secretly in love with Neil. Yeah. And, yeah, having to make that decision probably was not easy for her. Yeah. The brothers. The brothers, yeah. So the brothers are Simon and Neil cotton and mm -hmm. they are the grandsons of the owner of the castle in which cassandra and her family live so cassandra's father basically got a lease for the castle for 40 years and they should be paying rent annually to someone but because they're so poor they don't and simon and neil come over from america and move into the house that they've inherited from their grandfather and they meet the Mortmains. Simon falls in love with Rose. Neil is just kind of there <laughs> for a while. <laughs> so Simon is the older one and Neil is the younger mm -hmm. one and we get the sense that their parents are divorced because Simon grew up with his mother in New York and Neil grew up with their father in California so Neil is kind of, he wants to be a rancher, and Simon is more cultured, I guess. Mm -hmm. What did you think of them then? I thought that we didn't, we didn't hear as much about them as we could have done. It was a little difficult to understand some of their motivations at points. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they became very, very generous. They were obviously fabulously wealthy. Yeah, and became very generous with the Mortmains, giving them all sorts of things and paying for train rides to London and forgiving all the rent and really trying to encourage the writing career of of Mister Mortmain, the father. Mm -hmm. Um, but apart from that, you like, I didn't really understand where the money came from, or why they both behaved the way that they did. I thought they were interesting characters. I've already written, I've already told you the main thing that I wrote down, which was that I was really worried that Neil was going to go for Cassandra <laughs> because Cassandra seemed to be, they sort of treated her like a little girl. When they first met her, she was sort of in the bath having just done all this dyeing of their clothes and she had green, green hands and they described her as a cute kid. So I was a little concerned about Neil's motivations and designs towards her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe especially after reading Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> and Simon I found really confusing because he was obviously infatuated with Rose. But I didn't understand why he then kept sending Cassandra all these fabulous gifts and turning up to visit her. Yep. Because given that... The whole idea was that Rose was marrying for for wealth or all of that thing. You kind of got the idea that then having unchaperoned visits with a man would have been very frowned upon, and yet it didn't seem to be, and he was just always there. And he kisses her at one point, mm -hmm. at which point all of my alarm bells went up. <laughs> yep, yep. But it really does seem to have just been 
that he was completely infatuated with Rose and maybe a little confused about his role as well because as soon as the relationship with Rose sort of crumbled, he then almost immediately starts, like, there's a point where Cassandra goes, oh, I think he's going to propose to me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what does this guy think his think he's doing? <laughs> <laughs> yep, I agree with you. I found Simon to be very confusing, very frustrating. Again, because he's only ever described from uh, Cassandra's yes. point of view, and Cassandra is desperately in love with him by the end. I was wary of him as well. And I particularly didn't appreciate the fact that he continuously referred to Cassandra as a child. Even after he kisses her, he says something, something, my child, my wild Mm. child. And I'm just like, stop infantilizing her. Like Mm. she's 17 going on 18 at this point. Mm-hmm. Why are you still calling her a child? It's becoming kind of creepy. I would, I think, I would have preferred if Cassandra and Neil had had a relationship, mm. because it just it seemed to add some unnecessary drama. Everything yeah. that was happening, and yeah, I got the sense that both Simon and his mother were kind of like their motivation seemed to be the fact that. Um, Cassandra's father was a bit of a celebrity because he had published Mm -hmm. a book a few years ago. It was a big hit and they saw him as this, you know, really forward thinking kind of revolutionary author. And I think they were kind of feeding off of that, which is maybe why they were forgiving of the fact that he couldn't pay the rent and all those Mm -hmm. things. And obviously once um Simon and Rose were engaged and Rose was practically part of the family I just kind of explained it away as okay then it makes sense that they would you know spend all this money on them now why mm. Simon sent Cassandra all those expensive gifts for her birthday I I don't know question at some point Rose no at some point Cassandra receives a new diary or like a new journal Mm. and some new pens and she thinks that they're from Simon do you agree that they are from Simon I think that they were from Simon um, because at first when she gets the new journal I think she gets it with a with a thing of sweets yes and she has let Simon have a look into her journal because she's practicing speed writing Mm-hmm. And she's confident that he won't be able to read what she's written, and he can't, but he sort of bribes her into letting him look by saying that he would get her some sweets. So so I think that the journal sort of came as a consequence of that, and he would have looked at, because I think by that point she's writing in Stephen's journal, which Stephen bought for her, and then the next one that comes along is this really fabulous expensive one from the same shop where he got the sweets so maybe he's just thinking he'll do her a kind turn by you know upgrading her journal Mm -hmm. the the pens i i think i just assumed they were from simon but i didn't really give it much more thought okay so i again i read it differently i thought that they were from steven that once he got that day job in London where he would pose for photographs, I thought that he used Mm. 
those wages to buy the present for Cassandra. Yeah, I didn't I didn't really suspect it by that point. Do you remember if her birthday was before or after she started getting the pens, etc.? Uh it was after. I think her birthday was even after they kissed, so Okay, so I I do wonder if if Stephen had sort of realized by that point that it was a that it was a non-starter, which I think is why I dismissed it as possibly being Stephen. Okay. Uh, just a sec. My headphones are running out of battery, so I'm going to switch to a different pair. Um, so in the meantime, why don't you tell me what you think of Neil? Neil, he, he was written as being really indifferent to England, um, or not indifferent, but thinking that England was really quaint and almost taking it all as a bit of a joke because it wasn't like what he knew which was America and I think at one point Cassandra even even asks him about it and he says it's not that he doesn't like England it's just that it's different or something along those lines I don't really know what to make of him I I kind of got the impression that he was there as like the younger brother the whole idea is that they're trying to get to know each other again having not grown up together but that the intention is that he will the intention is always that he will go back to america it, you almost get the impression from cassandra's journal that he is trying to tempt simon away from living in england so that the house that Simon's inherited is given to the other relatives that feature so I don't know I think I just found him a little confusing I I didn't really know what his motivations were for being there Mm -hmm. and the way that he was always so charming to Cassandra Mm -hmm. as I've said sort of made me a bit sus (laughs) okay fair enough I suppose I viewed him a bit more sympathetically. I quite liked him as a character. I thought he was quite mm. funny, quite fun. Obviously, he's younger than Simon, so, you know, if he had started a relationship with Cassandra, I don't think it would have been so scandalous. But, yeah, I, I don't really know what else to say about him. He wasn't particularly well-developed. I think you've described him well enough. <laughs> Those are they're sort of the main four characters. Mm-hmm. Stephen also plays a massive part in this. Yes. So, what did you think of Stephen? Yeah. So Stephen is the son of their maid. Unfortunately, she dies before the book begins, and they dis- they kind of semi adopt him, I guess. As in, he lives in the castle with them, but he mostly does all of the chores around the house and helps with the upkeep and the gardening, etc. Um, he is described as being incredibly handsome. He's about Cassandra's age and is obviously infatuated with her. And mm-hmm. he kind of, by the end of the book, becomes a model slash actor in London. I liked him. Like, I was kind of rooting for him. I, I thought that him and Cassandra would end up together. Um, I thought he was 
very mature for his age, very kind and humble and very giving. He uses most of his earnings to help the family, which I thought was really, really nice of him. He doesn't really complain about the fact that he, you know, doesn't make a lot of money or that they can't pay him. So I liked him. I liked him a lot. Mm. I think maybe he was my favorite after Cassandra. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that he was a really, really good character. The, I feel like the book ends and there was never any sequel published, so it's sort of a bit open as to what everybody does. And I, f- I felt like he had one of the more interesting potential lives beyond the book because he sort of gets discovered through his association with the Mortmains, who are then going to see the Cottons, and then he gets discovered by Leda Foxcotton, who is a photographer and an artist, and she has all these contacts. Mm-hmm. And so by the end of the book, he's been discovered in the film world, and he's moved to London, and he's acting some small parts um, in the pictures. <laughs> I sort of would have liked to have found out more about, you know, did he make it big? Did did he go to Hollywood? Did Hollywood really ruin him? <laughs> you know, he he starts off so lovely because he's he he is doing everything that he can for Cassandra and all of his savings are going to buy gifts for her. Mm. And he I think he sort of assumes that they're just going to get married mm. after she lets him kiss her on her birthday. And then it's really progressing beyond kissing and he eventually says no stop stop and then starts talking about when we get married i think that would have kept him humble whereas once he's realized there's no chance with cassandra and he's moved to london and he's started something with lena or Leda, i can't remember um fox cotton that there's potential for his life to go badly awry <laughs> So I think from a beyond-the-book point of view, he was m- the most interesting, but he was also... He was really the the rock of the castle in terms of he was the one who brought in all the money and he did all of the chores around the house. So when he leaves, Cassandra's suddenly like, oh, I didn't realise how much Stephen actually used to do around here. I kind of got the feeling that his relationship with Leda was also a bit exploitative Mm. on her part. Yes. It seemed to me that he wasn't 100% a willing participant and was mostly doing it because he felt like he owed it to her because Mm. she was the one who had discovered him and taken photographs of him and introduced him to a lot of important people in the business. And he did also keep checking with Cassandra, saying, you know, is this really what you want me to do? I mean, we keep talking about all these relationships, but it it, it kind of felt like there were a lot of relationships happening, or I don't know if I was yeah. just reading too much into it, but everybody no, seemed to be paired off, even though they were married. It almost felt, mm. it almost seemed like they were having affairs with other people, but it was mm. never explicitly stated. So maybe it was all very innocent and I'm just you know, <laughs> assuming too much, but... Yeah, 
um, yeah, you had uh, Stephen with uh, Leda, then Leda's husband seemed to be infatuated with Cassandra's stepmother, Topaz. Yep. Cassandra's father got on really well with Mrs. Cotton, who is Simon and Neil's mother. He would just randomly go to London without really explaining why. I don't know. Did you get a sense that they were romantically involved or? I was wondering if that was what it was going to turn into. But by the end of the book, I think I had decided that it was just just warp- being warped by the lens that Cassandra was seeing them through. Because mm-hmm. like once Mortmain, which is what they all call the father, starts working again, uh, Topaz comes back and is completely in love with him again. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Cotton is, we're led to sort of just see her as like this really eccentric American woman who's just completely not at all like any British person. There there did seem to be a lot of relationships, but I, but I also think that sometimes it's quite difficult to distinguish between what is a romantic relationship mm. and what is a, maybe not friendship, but like a relationship with somebody where you're getting some kind of support that you need from them Mm -hmm. because i think as a society we sort of assume that 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 supportive relationship only comes from your partner Mm -hmm. at least we do today the other thing that made it a bit confusing was that when stephen and cassandra are kissing in the woods cassandra describes it as making love yes and then also just asks Stephen if him and Leda have just made love and he says yes and obviously what we understand as making love these days is having a sexual relationship and it obviously means something very different but it makes it therefore quite hard to interpret what it actually does mean yes I was I I wanted to ask you if you knew historically speaking what it meant because I was just trying to look it up now and I can't find any explanation but yeah, I'm afraid I don't know. I also wondered. As did I. Because that really confused me. Yeah. Because she says that they kissed. Then she said it was a bit more. And then she referred mm-hmm. to as, as you say, making love. Mm. And Rose refers to Simon's behavior towards her as making love. And then mm. Stephen and Leda as well. So uh, evidently it meant something slightly different back then. I just yeah. don't know what. <laughs> yeah. Maybe... I, yeah, I don't courtship? know either, to be honest. Like another way of saying they were courting each other, or... Or maybe just, like, even something as basic as French kissing or snogging. <laughs> because when Stephen sort of ends things in the wood, Cassandra's talking about taking her top off. Mm. So it's obviously not got any more serious than clothes on. Mm. Kissing and a bit of touching? I don't know. Yeah, I also don't know. Mm, context that we are missing. Mm, yeah. I think the way that he was so infatuated with Cassandra was really interesting. I think I probably would have found it slightly less believable, excepting that there was a friend of mine at school who was obviously infatuated with me which I only realised, like, ten years later. And 
just did a similar thing, you know, got like little gifts and all of those things. I'm really glad that nothing ever came of that friendship because we're still friends now. But but it sounded like it was really it was almost a foregone conclusion to Stephen that things with Cassandra were just gonna go they were just gonna gonna get married. Whereas Mortmain kept telling Cassandra she needed to be brisk with Stephen, mm-hmm. which which I think was basically just put him off, don't lead him on. And Cassandra was kind of completely naively oblivious to it until she then makes the decision to go into the Bluebell Wood with him. And and I feel like that was the point at which she kind of turned into a much more grown-up person. I thought there were quite a few important growing-up moments not just the the when she goes into the woods with Stephen and has her first kiss, but also, as you said, on Midsummer Night's Eve, when she make, comes to the realization that this is the last time that she will do the ritual that she would do with her sister when they were younger. But also, they have a, a mannequin in their bedroom, whom they call Miss Blossom, I think, and sometimes mm-hmm. they kind of act like she's a real person and have conversations with her. And at some point, there is the scene where she also realizes that this is quite childish behavior and consciously decides, okay, this is the last time that I'm going to pretend that she is a real person. And then Mm. she only ever treats her as a mannequin after that. So, yeah, yeah, there were quite clear moments of her coming to some sort of adult realization or, you Mm. know, a moment where she grew up a little bit. Yeah. In terms of Stephen's assumption that they would just eventually get married, I think I excused that to myself as kind of almost out of necessity in the sense of they lived so isolated from everyone else. You know, who else would they realistically actually meet in their life? And evidently they were quite close friends anyway. So I could understand it. But I appreciated the fact that he was also mature enough to realize that she didn't reciprocate his feelings and let it and he just let it go like he didn't make mm. a big deal out of it which mm-hmm. which was nice like he just seemed like a really decent person did um do you remember did Cassandra tell him that Rose wasn't in love with Simon I don't remember to be honest with you but he does tell Neil yeah I can't remember if that was based on what Cassandra had told him or just his own conclusion. Yeah, I I sort of I wondered about the motivations behind that because I was sort of like okay, he's now made the decision to move to London and he's realized that things with Cassandra aren't going to go ahead and he's left the castle forever. And is that like was that him trying to be generous to Cassandra because he had guessed that she was in love with Simon. And so by telling Neil that would therefore free Rose from Simon and thus Simon from Rose, leaving Simon open for Cassandra, or was that like, well, I'm going to get some revenge at Cassandra and her family for Cassandra not loving me the way that I love her? Oh, 
Um, I didn't see it as having any malicious intent. No. No, I I didn't either, but I just sort of wonder, you know. Mm. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. Mm. I'm inclined to read it as him doing it for Cassandra, as you say. Mm. But yeah, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. In which case, what is Cassandra doing, man? <laughs> Giving up that, right? <laughs> uh I mean, she also comes to that conclusion at some point when... Ugh, how does she phrase it? Like, she really loves Simon, but when she sees how desperately Simon loves Rose and how upset he is that Rose is actually leaving him because she's in love with Neil, uh, Cassandra makes some kind of comment of, you know, if it would make him happy she would want Rose to reciprocate his feelings, even mm. though that would then mean that Cassandra can't have him. So yeah, it becomes a kind of the more selfless love, I suppose, where the, the happiness of the other person is more important than your own. Yeah, it's interesting. Do we want to talk a bit about the father? Yes, I thought he was really interesting. Mm-hmm. I would say that he was the least well-developed character. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really didn't find out very much about him of, other than he was really grumpy and he had a temper and he'd gone to jail for attempting to stab somebody with a cake knife. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of hated him. Like, oh. he was he was quite happy to just go sit in his little little office and completely ignore the fact that the rest of the family were starving and he was being completely shielded by Topaz, his second wife mm-hmm. but but he was taking absolutely no responsibility for a situation that he had landed them all in and I, did, I didn't like that at all. I wouldn't go so far as to say that I hated him mm-hmm. um, but yes I agree with everything that you said, and just thinking about it now, it kind of reminds me of the father from uh, Court of Thrones and Roses, who also just kind of is miserable and wallows in his own misery instead mm-hmm. of contributing anything to the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't really understand him. I didn't understand what he was doing with his time he's kind of portrayed as an author suffering from writer's block but at the same time i kind of got the feeling that he just didn't really want to write anymore like he was happy Mm. enough to have written one successful novel and wasn't really interested in continuing and it felt almost as if he was bullied into (laughs) writing Mm. again so yeah the ending in which Um, Cassandra and Thomas basically lock him in the tower and force him to write was just kind of weird like what even were you thinking (laughs) yeah I kind of felt like everybody was starting to lose the plot a little bit by that point of the book Yeah, and I really thought he kept on doing weird things like he would pick up a willow plate or a haddock skeleton Mm. and 
walk away with it. So I really thought that he was going to have something like dementia, Mm -hmm. which they would have called something different back then, rather than it all being passed off as him just being this eccentric writer genius, you know. Mm. So it, it surprised me a little bit that that all sort of had a happy ending. I felt like it was almost like there was a happy ending for him in that he had started to write again and the book had been picked up because the author felt that he needed a happy ending because everybody else had kind of got their happy endings. Mm -hmm. But actually, he didn't need to publish another book by that point because they were all well cared for by that point. The fact that Rose was marrying into the Cotton family via Neil rather than Simon meant that they would still have been alright, and Simon was quite happy to remain the patron of the book, as it were. So, yeah, I I don't know. I think I'm the least satisfied by his character. I would agree with you. It, it kind of felt like... I wondered if the author, Dodie Smith, was trying to make some kind of comment about authors and follow-up novels. <laughs> because... Maybe. It also felt like... He was writing seemingly nonsense. At least Cassandra mm. didn't understand the point of what he was doing. You know, he wrote a page of some childhood um, children's rhyme. Mm-hmm. Then he wrote a crossword puzzle. Then he wrote riddles. And to Cassandra, it made no sense whatsoever. But everybody else was a- assigning meaning to it, mm. <laughs> which kind of reminded me of... For example, last week we read Alice in Wonderland, which is literary nonsense. Nothing happens, like it makes no sense whatsoever, but people are assigning meaning to it anyway. Mm. So I wonder if it was supposed to be a commentary on that as well, that, you know, once you're successful enough, it almost feels like it doesn't matter what else you do, you're still going to be considered a genius slightly misunderstood and enigmatic and revolutionary. <laughs> yeah, it, I I completely I I like that as an as a sort of thought cuz you know, if you look at the way that things are even today, like an influencer wears a jacket from Next and tags Next and then the next thing everybody's bought the jacket and Next doesn't have it in stock anymore. It sort of has overtones of that similar sort of well it doesn't matter what they do whatever they do is genius and perfect and we should all think it's amazing and and aspire to be like that Mm. I thought it was really interesting I think Simon lends him a book that's been written about his book by a critic in America and at the at the first time he reads it he says to Topaz oh it's really interesting he's assigned all sorts of meaning where there wasn't any and then the next time he, it comes up, I think Topaz is telling Cassandra, you know, he now believes that he did intend what the critic had mm. written. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I completely believe that. And, and also Dodie Smith was involved in Hollywood and plays and everything. So she would have been exposed to quite a lot of that in her life anyway. I guess adoration for the sake of it rather than because it's actually any good. There was also another part of the book which I found a bit out of place which was 
when Cassandra was feeling particularly sad about the fact that she was in love with Simon, but he was in love with Rose. She went down to the village, and she had a conversation with the vicar about religion, and the fact that she wasn't religious, but perhaps she should be religious, and just a general kind of discussion about theology, mm. which I felt was completely out of place. I know the vicar had been a recurring character, but he felt more kind of like the friendly neighbor, more so than the actual priest. What did you think of that section? Yeah, I thought that was really weird as well. And I thought it was especially weird that it was sort of, you know, she was hanging out, getting drunk, basically, with the vicar and then with the school teacher later on. Ugh. I don't know. I guess maybe it was, maybe it was like an exploration of how to find meaning because a lot of people do turn to religion when they're when they're trying to figure out what the point in life is mm -hmm. um because obviously without a higher power we can't be you know whatever <laughs> um but but it did feel like that bit could have been cut out of the book completely and it wouldn't have made any difference because it's not really explored again or mentioned again no so I think when we were telling us about Dodie Smith, you said mm. that this book was probably written because of her homesickness. Mm. Uh, why do you say that? Partly because of the fact that she wrote it when she was living in California. Mm -hmm. And right from the word go, I'm not sure if you have the same impressions of it as I do, but portrays a really romanticized idea of England and everything is sort of perfect you know even the smell of the cow poo <laughs> is it's not the smell of cow poo it's the smell of the countryside and the sort of the weather is described as being essentially perfect for every season mm -hmm. you know you really really got the feeling that that this was a place that Cassandra but obviously Dodie Smith through the book really, really loved and mm. and wanted to capture in a way that conveyed that same passion for it mm -hmm. to to the reader. And I must say that it was one of the things that I loved the most about the book, the way that it was so romantic. <laughs> and I don't mean romantic in a love sort of point of view. I just mean, you know, like waking up first thing in the morning and hearing the bird song or mm. describing flowers in minute detail. Um, I thought it was quite refreshing in a weird way. Mm -hmm. Yep, I agree with you. I also got the sense that, you know, it was a very idealized account of what it would be like to live in the English countryside in a derelict castle where nothing works. <laughs> and I, I also enjoyed it. Like, I also liked it. It's definitely... I'm not sure that it's something that I would do. I would definitely mm -hmm. not invest in a castle to live in. But, like, I enjoyed that aspect of the book, yeah. Yeah, it really, it really sort of spoke to me. Like, I used to spend hours when we were... I think I might have even talked about this when we were discussing Alice in Wonderland. But I, I did used to just spend hours sitting around, like, imagining things and and 
And I think there is something about England that does make you do that, especially when it comes to castles and remains and the history of it all, mm-hmm. because it's it's also front and centre here. You know, yeah. there's there's a lot of preservation and a lot of effort goes into making sure that buildings stay the same and mm. um and so it is quite difficult sometimes to to forget all of that. Yeah, so I can remember as a teenager sitting around and being like, if we went and visited a castle, you know, it wasn't just a pile of rocks, it was it was imagining, oh, you know, the kitchen would have looked like this and there would have been all these people here and so I, I really loved that part, that element of it. And she went into quite a lot of history about the castle as well. There's this show that I watched with my mom, which is, I think he's called Renovation Man or something. Mm. And it is basically a show about people who buy a derelict castle or buy <laughs> a rundown barn and then completely transform it into some kind of modern living space, but obviously mm. keeping all of the historical uh, elements. And yeah, like every time we see an episode like that, we just look at each other and we think, who has the vision, you know? Like if I saw that derelict barn, I, it would never occur to me to to turn it into a house. But some people just have that vision, and evidently Cassandra's father did because he completely fell in love with the castle when they took a wrong turn one night when they were driving through the countryside. I think I'm I'm like I am also fascinated by it. Would I do it? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anything else? We haven't really talked about Topaz. It's There's true. not much to say, I don't think, but I really liked her character. She she was sort of she came across as being quite selfish and lightheaded and airy fairy because she was she liked to sit you know, she sat for paintings and she liked to paint and she really defended her husband within an inch of her life, even when he wasn't necessarily correct all the time. Mm-hmm. But then they're going to dinner at the Cotton's house and she wears a really unflattering dress because she's like, Well, this is Rosa's night and so uh, you really, I don't know, I really liked that she was a lot more of a motherly character than she first appeared. Yeah, I really liked that she wasn't like the evil stepmother that you usually see. And the fact that even though she wasn't that much older than the girls, that they didn't see that as a in any way negative or like a bad thing. They just kind of accepted it. Mm-hmm. Even though I I never kind of really saw the point of their relationship with the father because he was quite dismissive of her, it felt like. Yeah, I think it was sort of described as she really needed to be needed. And yes. so when when he was going off with Mrs. Cotton mm. and getting all this lively conversation out of her... Um, that's when Topaz sort of moved back to London and was thinking, well, I don't know if I'll ever come back. Mm. But then when he started writing again and he really did need that support again, she was much more interested in him. And yeah, who knows his motivation? He seems happy to just sit and let people look after him no matter what. So, (laughs) 
There was also a lot of emphasis on clothes. Did you notice that? Like there was so much discussion about who wore what and what's appropriate and oh my old dress and oh I don't have anything to wear and dyeing old clothes green mm. to kind of make them look a bit more new. I think that's really a sign of the times mm. mm-hmm. because fashion is fast nowadays whereas b- back then they wouldn't have had factories in Bangladesh or you know anything like that it would have all been handmade they even refer to how do they call it ready made or yeah which makes it seem like those are the kind of fast fashion as you call it yeah which was kind of looked down upon as in that's something that you buy when you can't afford to have a dress made specifically for you yeah exactly yeah it's like a temporary measure but it was it was interesting. I think it's one of those things that helps to sort of bring it to life because you can then imagine almost like a Gatsby-esque kind of thing when they're going to the matinee or the opera or whatever it is that they went to in London. It was nice to visit London as well. Yeah. Briefly. She goes to Hyde Park. For some reason there are sheep there, which I found a bit confusing. I didn't know that there used to be sheep in Hyde Park. Yeah, I think they used to keep the grass short. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I have anything else to say, really. No, I don't think I do either. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Why do you think it's considered one of the top 100 books? I I think it's really well written, and it really does capture England at a time when things were very different. In a way that's really accessible mm-hmm. nowadays. But there's nothing that's too sort of controversial about it, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. And I suppose it is kind of timeless, like it is the typical coming of age, you know, growing yeah. up story. Your first love, the kind of obsession and melodrama that surrounds that. Yes. <laughs> because right. it it did feel quite melodramatic at points. Yes. <laughs> definitely <laughs> yeah and I think I think a lot of the things that it discusses like that first love infatuation falling in love over a kiss um, you know figuring out what am I going to do with my life after school all of those sorts of things they, they're issues that we still have to face now and we will have to face them for millennia because it's that's just part of being a human <laughs> <laughs> hmm. yeah um, I also so. Maybe one last thing. Found it interesting. They kept talking about psychoanalysis. And when they thought that their father was going crazy, that maybe he should be psychoanalyzed. It kind of sounded like she just threw that in because it was the buzzword of the day. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I would really love to know how it was received when it was first published. I think it... I mean, I think it must have been received quite well because the rights yeah, were definitely. very quickly bought by Disney. They wanted to, you know, adapt it into a movie. Mm-hmm. They didn't until like 2000 and something, I think, was the first adaptation. But Good. Well, I'm really glad you enjoyed it because I was really nervous that you weren't going to. Oh. <laughs> no, I did. I, I did. I, I, had a, I had a good time with it. Um, I wasn't sure I would have a lot to say about it because... At times it felt like there wasn't really much happening. Mm. 
they were, you know, very day-to-day scenes. Like, it was mm-hmm. all very kind of normal life. There wasn't anything yeah. fantastical about it. So I didn't know if I would have anything to say, but evidently I did, because we've been talking yeah. for a while. <laughs> I don't have the schedule in front of me. Do you know what we're discussing next time? Yes, next time we are discussing The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. Excellent. I have hyped that up for myself, so I hope it lives up to expectations. Have you? Yeah. Well, we'll see. I, I've i seen the film, I think. Mm-hmm. As always, it has been a pleasure. Yes, it has. Thanks for picking this book and for talking to me about it for so long. <laughs> no problem. I will look forward to discussing The Picture of Dorian Gray with you next week. Me too. Until then, goodbye. And bye. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about us and the podcast, visit our website at readingmaterialspodcast.com. We also publish additional content, including blog posts around the world of books and our thoughts on the topic. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at reading.materials.podcast at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at readingmaterialspod. Until next time, keep reading.